I'm not the house of cards that falls down easily Ooh, I'm strong enough to handle what you throw at me Welcome to Mental Health News Radio. I'm your host, Kristen Sunanta-Walker. Just what are we going to discuss? The intimacy that is mental health. Let's continue to make it as comfortable as discussing brain health or heart health. This show has been on the air for several years and we have amazing co-hosts. And then we created a network of podcasters on mentalhealthnewsradionetwork.com, a place where every possible facet of mental well-being can be talked about openly. My show, after several hundred interviews, the format is this. Intimate, deep, funny, touching, sometimes uncomfortable, but always vulnerable conversations with interesting people. The goal is to have you, our listening family, many of you who have become my good friends, feel as though you are listening in on private conversations. Thank you for tuning in and becoming part of this amazing journey with me and now with our network of podcasters. Just knowing this podcast might be helping any of you realize you are not alone on this journey called being a human being makes doing this podcast worth every second. Hey everyone, Kristen Snutter-Walker here, and I'm really excited about the show because yes, we're going to talk about horses. And just even if you think that you don't like them, stay tuned, keep listening. Um, Our guest today is Maddie Caballo, and that actually means horse in Spanish, I just found out. And um, Maddie has some wonderful information to share with us about how healing horses have been for her on her mental health journey. We're going to talk about disassociative identity disorder, you know, her mental health journey. So I'm really excited to introduce Maddie to the show. Maddie, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. So tell our listeners a little bit more, like I I know there's a lot that, you know, more than what I just said, but give them an idea about your background. Sure. Um, So a little bit about me is, um, you know, my, my uh, journey with being in circumstances that were difficult began from birth for me. And so the first 20 years of my life, I was uh, born into a situation where I was ritually abused. And uh, that's all I knew. And so I knew it, I began, you know, learning over time that things could be different and I wanted them to be different. And I was lucky, I say, because um, I was able to have some heroes on my journey along the way that helped me to know that I could strive for something outside of the people who were raising me and right. uh, the circumstances I was being raised in. So. Um, so that was kind of the first 20 years I met a therapist who helped me get out of that situation. Um, so I met her when I was uh, 17 and a half and she helped me. It took, it, it took about two and a half years for me to totally get uh, away from uh, the people who abused me. But um, mm-hmm. I was able to do that and then had to learn how to kind of survive in a world outside of where there was so much control and being told what to do and where I really didn't have decisions to make. Yeah, and where you're like, oh, okay, and I'm not putting wolves down. I'm using this as an, an analogy, but if you're raised by wolves, whether they're your parents or not, if you're raised in them, you really don't know how to be amongst humans. <laughs> so it takes no. a few years of of working on that stuff to sort of figure out, oh, this is how healthy people behave. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. 
I kind of went by a mantra of just doing everything uh, the opposite of what they did. And I figured and assumed that that would uh, mean that I was good and I was doing good things because I knew what they were doing wasn't. It was a very simplistic viewpoint to kind of live by, but it worked for me um, mm-hmm. and, and being able to keep taking one next step forward. And so, you know, I've grown past that now, but I would say just until like about five years ago, it's just kind of how I did things, kind of the opposite of what I was ex- uh, exposed to and experienced when I was growing up because um, I knew that it just intrinsically inside me didn't feel good. So I knew doing the opposite of what they would have done, it was a pretty good way to kind of guide myself into to becoming a a good citizen in the world. <laughs> yeah, and also to be your own person. I mean, people that are behaving that way are, um, I, my experience is they really don't have the ability to have uh, their own identity. They don't, because they can't evolve and grow, they latch on to other people's identities and they can latch on to a lot of other people's identities. And those people aren't, you know, sometimes those people are healthy. Most of the time they're not. And so they just pick up traits and behave deplorably, but they never actually like became who they really are. But boy, they'll tell you that they are the most evolved person you've ever met. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Exactly. So uh, about the disassociative identity disorder piece, there's, we've done shows on this. We we did a show that upset some people, um, and I and it was really because the person that was talking about it, the expert that was talking about it, didn't know that particular diagnosis very well, so they were uncomfortable. So we did a follow-up show and a few follow-up shows to kind of really focus on it with people that know what it is and how to talk about it. But it's still really misunderstood. So for you, what what was that diagnosis about? Gosh, it truly is misunderstood. It's still a little bit scary to put myself out there saying, yes, you know, I um, have dissociative identity disorder um, because people do judge that. And I, you know, and I, I don't blame them because I think the media and um, what they see and read about it is, is not always portrayed. Like mm-hmm. it really, uh, Come, it comes through. It's not, you know, it's for me, I was diagnosed when I was 17. So uh, it was a long time ago. <laughs> and it was back in the 90s. So it was like, there wasn't as much information out there about it. There wasn't as much known. It was actually called multiple personality disorder right. back then. So I would say, you know, for me, it's, I see it now as just it's a, a coping mechanism that I use to save my life. And I, I didn't really know and I'm not really big on labels carrying them around with me. But I what I do know is that it was a really unique way for me. It's kind of I, I overdeveloped. I had a lot of time where I spent alone. Mm-hmm. And in order to kind of stay safe within my own self, I, you know, created uh, what a lot of kids do, which is like create like imaginary friends. Mm-hmm. It's just my imaginary friends became very, very well developed into almost what I felt like were separate parts of myself. And it kept me from feeling so alone. And so like, everything that was happening to me wasn't just me. It was like, oh, this is the part, you know, this is, and I had names, everybody kind of experiences this differently, but I had names just like other people names, like other kids. So they became like my friends basically. And then when things became very, very painful, it was a really uh, a way that I could separate myself from like something I could 
can tolerate or I can tolerate doing like the things I was being asked to do were outside of my morals. And so, but I had to do it to stay alive and survive. So I just, I see it as a huge uh, coping skill, survival skill. It does get in your way when you, <laughs> when you're not in a situation because it becomes so, for me, it became like, it's, it's, uh, it's a habit. And so it's what I refer to, it's kept me safe. So like the slightest little thing, um, as I became an adult and I got out of that situation, I really didn't need to rely on it. I would, at the slightest thing that uh, frightened me or threw me off or with some sort of stress in my life, it was just I deferred to it because that's just the way I had it. It's like a habit, like any other habit. <laughs> yeah, and it's a, it was a survival tool, literally life and death. Mm-hmm. So I want listeners to understand, you know, we're not talking about, oh, this was a choice as a kid. DID is created. It's not genetic. So right, as far right. as I've. I've read. So it's something that someone gets because of extreme abuse. And that's what they, that's how amazing our minds are. That's how amazing the human body is. That's how amazing kids are and resilient they are about protecting themselves. They will create other identities that will be able to handle the life threatening situations that they are in, in order to survive them. It just, you know, you, there's a point at which in order to evolve as a human being and have a healthier experience of life that you have to integrate those those people that were created in order to protect you in order to move on into you know being a healthy adult so you know it's it's nothing for anyone to be ashamed of and it's certainly nothing for anyone to make fun of at anyone it's actually horrifying if people use it to make fun of someone yeah. Yeah. What I've really learned is that, you know, like all of us really have different parts of ourselves and it's just kind of how you identify with them. But, you know, you hear people talking about, you know, my good side or my bad side or, you know, mm-hmm. uh, different things like that. Or like we, we all behave a little bit differently in different situations at work versus home or with our kids and different things. It's mm-hmm. kind of, if you can think about it on that same kind of um, level, it's kind of the same thing, but it's like learning how to, to integrate them. So I saw them as very separate parts of myself and parts that I, when I started healing and doing my um, mental health work, I also thought I was going to be able to just heal those parts enough that they would be satisfied and I would get rid of them. So I actually had this whole (laughs) theory that I was going to do this butterfly release and the butterflies would represent each of those parts of myself that held these like horrific parts of my story and feelings about my story and all this kind of stuff. And then I started working with a therapist that was like very lovingly and nudgingly. <laughs> she started suggesting the idea that um, it's, you know, these parts are actually part of me. Mm-hmm. And so, and then, you know, it's still a little hard if I talk about like accepting that. So really I was trying to not accept the parts of my story that happened to me that was too horrific. Right. But it's um, now I'm starting to understand that, like, I, I, that, you know, sending, having this big send off and I'm, I'm not going to get rid of the parts of me. They're just going to have new jobs and help me with all of their strengths that they had then to do what I need to do as a person now, um, because they all had very significant survival skill things that you don't want to get rid of necessarily. It's just you need to learn how to use them in a different way. Right. Exactly. Exactly. And I think too, yeah, I mean, I look at our society today with social media and I think there's so much um, 
you know, disassociative identity disorder, uh, um, you know, going on right there because we're creating these personas that are not real. They are not a real reflection of our lives. And they're also not there as a survival mechanism. They're there to feed narcissism. And that gets confused with, no, this was created because I was being horrifically abused. So there's so many uh, different ways to kind of look at this and, and see, I guess what I'm trying to say, listeners, is we all have different pieces of ourself. When it becomes a disorder is usually out of some kind of horrific abuse, but everyone lives with personas and different behaviors and so on. The goal in life for anyone, though, is to have those um, all be in the light or be in the light as much as possible and to be aware of them and, and what they're doing in your life and to integrate them. Am I right on that, Maddie? Yeah, that sounds right. I know we were going to talk about horses, but why for you was that piece such a, a healing piece for you? Uh, you know, um, I had been in therapy. I'd gone back in therapy in uh, December 2003. And um, after an event happened at work, and it kind of re-brought up everything for me. And I went, you know, two to three times a week, and I was um, very, uh, I, I worked really hard at trying to heal. And I kept kind of just living in the trauma cycle. So with my particular type of abuse, what happened was like there was a very set schedule, like a calendar. And so like every, you know, on these calendar event kind of dates, like my body would just relive the experiences. Mm -hmm. And then I'd have to try and restabilize myself. And I was making progress and it was keeping me like functional. Um, I was getting, got back to a place where I could, you know, be a good mom and, and go to, go to work. I mean, I never lost my job or anything, but I was more effective at work and, uh, doing the things I needed to do. But I knew I still wasn't like, it was still a a very difficult way to live. And, um, I actually just relocated. I had tried lots of different things, uh, to try and heal. Um, I had done some art therapy. I tried mostly I was doing cognitive behavioral therapy, um, and then I had relocated to the Phoenix area and I met a therapist who was pairing equine and I didn't really know anything about it at all, but I was like, I haven't tried that. <laughs> so <laughs> I can with her. And, um, so I think why your question was kind of why, um, it equine made a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because it was really, it was humans who had hurt me the most significantly mm-hmm. and I had a very hard time learning to trust and there was something about my I I went to a workshop that she was offering and uh, so it wasn't even an individual equine session with the first time I had the experience and there was just something there that made me want to try and stay present within myself which was very hard at the time to do um, and not dissociate there was a draw to me wanting to have that experience with that horse and there was also a way of being able to connect where I could, I felt more trust in that animal than I felt in the therapist herself. Interesting. So you didn't have any um, fear. Did you have any fears physically of, of the horses, like stepping on you, biting you, the size of them, anything like that? No, for me, I didn't. I, I know other people do, but for me, I uh, I didn't really. It was a little, um, you know, from what I'm told, I, I there's like 
when you have dissociation, it's hard to remember everything that, that happens mm-hmm. throughout a day. But, um, you know, from what we therapist, I, I like honestly had no idea like when a horse was stepping on me and things like that. So, I mean, she had to do a lot to manage that because I, I would, I use my go-to as a freeze response. And so, um, it was probably in the earlier days when I was highly dissociative. It was a lot of work for her to make sure I maintained safety around horses, but <laughs> thankfully she did do that for me. Interesting. That is fascinating. Okay. Okay. So obviously you're extremely empathic. Uh-huh. <laughs> what would you, you know, say, you know, that, that journey of, you know, working with a horse, what did they, what were they able to bring out? with within you to help you get to another level in your healing ah that it allowed me to be able to connect with something on the outside mm-hmm. so that I could start working towards connecting with myself and the parts of myself on the inside and then slowly but surely it, it led actually to me being able to connect with other uh, people and starting to trust people outside of myself so um, what happened was is that I'll call it a craving I think it was a good craving that I needed more and more horse time and equine therapy <laughs> is very expensive yeah <laughs> so I you know could only do my one session a week because that's all I could afford so I started talking and saying I really need more horse time like there was just something about it that I was just it was the one place I was feeling comfortable and um, so I craved it and so I started volunteering and uh, at a horse rescue. And I would say it, it just became like something I felt like I could get connect with, like more so than I'd ever been able to connect with before. Mm-hmm. And it was very just, there wasn't like horses are very neutral as far as judging you. The, the horses that do give you feedback like right away, like as far as a, you don't have to guess what they're thinking <laughs> and feeling and things like that. They do demonstrate that to you. And so it's a very authentic and honest relationship, which I think right. is really important with that when you're working with people who have had high levels of trauma. Yeah, that's so true. And they, um, they absolutely, uh, the right horse or the horse that you, uh, you absolutely need or the horse knows what you need um, in really trippy ways where uh, Melanie, our program director, has said it, you know, it's like a direct line to a higher power that from the horse to the higher power, and then they're helping you with that. (laughs) Yes, yes. (laughs) Because they just know. I just got my first horse ever, and um, all the ways that she is are things that I really need to work on the way that she displays them to me is not the way humans do, which sometimes, which can be very shaming and this is what's wrong with you and whatever her way of helping me get there is by being empowering. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. And they say that, you know, the right horse shows up for us Mm -hmm. to work on the things we need to. And I've been fortunate enough to have a lot of different uh, horses as part of my uh, healing journey. And they really are all so different. So it's not just a horse is a horse. <laughs> right. Um, each horse kind of offers like a different learning moment and different things to teach us. I mean, some are way more forgiving than others. Uh, <laughs> you know, some really make us have to try and earn their trust as well. And yeah. 
some, like I can see um, how frightened they get of things and how much it takes for them to trust. And I was like, wow, like, I'm not like, I I feel that I know how that feels like this, this animal like gets me. And um, that was really powerful. I bet. I bet. So we're doing the volunteer work. I understand that too. Um, What about that piece, you know, diving into it for you? What kinds of things did you do as a volunteer and how did it help you? Um, So I was lucky and fortunate enough to show up to somebody who was very patient um, because I really didn't know anything about horses at all. And I just had, you know, some like three or four months worth of equine uh, sessions that were therapeutic sessions. And so when I showed up, I really didn't even know how to put a halter on a horse. So they probably, <laughs> I, I guess that she probably was thinking, um, I don't how know what you're going to be able to do for us. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I don't know what you're going to be able to do. But, you know, um, she, I've grown to be friends with her now, and she's uh, very empathic as well. And she, I remember the most powerful moment. For, so the first few times I went out there, she explained and re-explained to me a few times, like how to put the uh, halter on the horse and how to lead it safely from, you know, one area to another and do the feed and those kinds of things. And one day I went out there expecting the same sort of routine. I'd go every Sunday and I expected the same kind of routine. And she um, was out there for about 10 minutes with me. And then she's just like, okay, I'm going to uh, go in the house. And if you need anything, just let me know. And I just froze. I was like, (laughs) oh my gosh, because I knew how much she loved. She had a couple of her own horses there and then the rest of them were rescue horses. I knew how much she loved those horses. And at the time, I felt like I was somebody who couldn't be trusted, that there was something wrong with me, Mm. like, you know, all of these things. It was a really powerful moment for me whenever she trusted me enough with her horses, these beings that she loved more than life itself. Right. Uh, and I, I just stood there for a few minutes. I mean, I was terrified because I was like, I don't know if I know what to do. Like, what if I do it wrong? What if I hurt them? And it really opened my eyes to like, it, it really was a changing moment for me in so many ways and that I could be trusted. Like this, this, this woman who didn't know me that well, she was like trusting me with something she loved so much. And it, it was, I brought it back to my therapy work then too and started working on that and this viewpoint that I had that I was somebody who was dangerous to others yes and dangerous to horses and everything I touched or was around was going to be hurt yeah Yeah, I was toxic yeah I know I know no one likes commercials but seriously folks without the help from these organizations we could not stay on the air please give a shout out to zencharts.com. If you're a mental health or addiction treatment center, you'll want to use their EHR. It's gorgeous. And they're just good people. And also mygenetics, M-Y-G-E-N-E-T-X.com, because knowing your genetic code empowers your mental health treatment. And lastly, copenotes.com. We love getting positive messages right to our phones every day from Johnny Crowder. He's the lead singer of Prison, a heavy metal band sharing their music about suicide prevention, addiction recovery, and mental health. See, that was painless. Support them as they support us. Back to the show. Oh, yeah. Oh, I I remember after years of therapy, I think I was like 35, I read, I read, I don't remember the name of it. And listeners, you've heard it, but it was about, oh, I think it's called Toxic Love. And I read it and I went, oh, my God, 
I still feel like that about myself. I've been in all this therapy and I still felt like that there was something toxic inside of me at the core. At the core of me was this horrible, toxic, you know, self. And it was a wake up, you know, and yet another wake up call of you kind of really need to work on that, Kristen, because you're still <laughs> right. carrying that around and that is not helping you in any way. And for me, that came from sexual abuse you know, as a young child. So, you know, that, that happens with that kind of abuse and, um, and you don't even realize that that's what you're behaving out of in your life. Yeah. And it, it really like was the beginning of me, like learning that, uh, or starting to work, it, it's taken years, but, and I'm still working on it, but that, uh, I am an okay person for others to be around and my right. heart is good. And, I'm not going to cause danger to other. Yes. And so that was kind of the beginning of it though. And um, uh, so, so volunteering. So, you know, and my drive was to want to be with those horses again. Like I wanted horse time, like, and I can't really explain <laughs> what it was. It was just a connection and something I was getting back. Yeah. That uh, is really kind of hard to explain to, to, to the listeners listening today, but it's, um, and what I would start say is you don't really have to be a horse person to benefit yeah. from. Um, you can go sit outside a, a fence where there's horses like grazing and they will offer you something back. I mean, you don't have to even be right up next to them. <laughs> you can have a fence between you and still have the experience. Absolutely. But it really, um, as I started volunteering, I had to interact with humans to be able to do that and ask for what I needed. And it was something that I didn't know how to do. Um, so I used, before that, I had stayed to things that I was comfortable and felt confident in, and uh, so I didn't have to ask for help a lot. And volunteering and not knowing much about horses uh, helped me to grow, too, with humans, because I had to learn <laughs> that it was safe for me to ask. They weren't going to hurt me. They weren't going to, you know, punish me for not knowing how to do something. And slowly but slowly, I, you know, started, like, growing um, and being able to do that. I, I wasn't very verbal at that time and I didn't, wasn't able to make eye contact. And so all of these kinds of things I worked on toward, uh, through that volunteering as well. Mm. That's what's amazing about, I, I volunteered my whole life in something or another and uh, always to do animals because <laughs> I felt safe around animals mm -hmm. always. That was my escape. So I totally get that. And it, it, it is for you as even more than the volunteering that you're doing for others. It does so much for you as a person. Um, whenever somebody says, I don't have time to do that, I think if you are someone that thinks that you don't have a lot of time and you're stressed about that, then definitely volunteer because all of a sudden you'll have all kinds of time in your life to do things and you'll be amazed at how did this happen because you actually gave up your time to something so it's it's interesting how, it, yeah. how that works well, it? I think it's a great suggestion for any therapist that's listening to this too to uh, try and recommend that as a tool for their clients yes. because it really helps too to focus on something else other than what it is that's causing such pain for them right then. It, mm -hmm. you know, it allows connection, it helps them grow and practice skills that they're learning in a session um, with somebody other than that therapist. And so there's so many uh, gifts that can come through <laughs> volunteering and 
expanding that person and also in, in fairly safe environments most of the time to, to be able to practice <laughs> the skills that they're learning. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's good for therapists to see too, like how do you behave outside of that therapist office? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, some people are, are really good at sitting down in the chair every week, but the therapist doesn't, you know, I mean, of course they're trained to watch body language and whatever, but putting them in situations that where you're insecure or uncomfortable or what have you um, as a patient and then them watching that or speaking with uh, maybe they're not the one that's there watching you with the horse, but they speak to the person who was gives them a, a great in great gives them great insight into ah uh, okay well here's some of their issues that I maybe won't see as quickly if we just talked every week in my office you know exactly yeah so you went from you know volunteering then you talk about your journey of you know you then you had a horse and now you live with horses so how did that journey go and what has that done for your mental well-being oh uh definitely I can talk about that um so you know I volunteered for about a year and I was like learning a lot of skills as far as like just horse care and uh wellness of the horse and how to interact with them and how to be safe around them and all those kinds of things and uh, that that craving that I initially had to want to spend more time with horses just kept growing and so I ended up adopting one of the horses from the rescue and uh, at the, that time I was uh, not not in a position to have a horse at my home but I uh, so I was boarding and I would board I was boarding barely far from my home about 45 minutes and so I would still go almost daily to to be with my horse because it was just and I would spend hours just sitting out um not necessarily doing a whole lot with the horse because I still didn't feel that uh confident um mm -hmm. but I would just sit and there was just so much gained out of that and then I had a fairly challenging horse I adopted my first horse I, I did not know quite what I was doing when I adopted an x-rays horse <laughs> but <laughs> um but she taught me so much because I had to uh, stay more present. I mean, she was very big. She had a very big personality. And um, she taught me so much about um, being very specific and how to ask for what I wanted because mm -hmm. she wasn't going to do it if I didn't. And um, and just being, uh, being responsible and being there for another being. So I did that for a while. And then um, so I boarded and then... Um, I was like, I really wanted to have a place of my own. The boarding facilities, um, it's just, you know, you have somebody else that's taking care of them most of the time, lots of people around. So then I ended up um, moving my horses to my home about probably two to three years after um, I started the journey with horses. And then it was just been a beautiful thing to have them on my own property and care for them. And right now I own my home and I on a small property and I have uh, my horse I ride and then I have two miniature horses and a donkey. and they're just amazing and uh they're just a part of my family and uh I feel really connected with them and they each each of them offer me a different part of my life of healing. Mm. Um, you know, um they're all very, very different but um continue to be a part of my journey and really something to connect with when I uh go back home every day and start my day every morning, uh being out there with them and seeing them and um 
kind of just reminding myself of, you know, my journey and where I started and building my confidence and right. getting through that day. Well, tell our listeners about, you know, what you do in terms of uh, either it's, if it's your work life or your advocacy or, you know, what, how has all of this brought you into being an advocate in the mental health space? Uh, so I think I talked about it just a little bit earlier, but I had this uh, vision that I was going to be able to just kind of send all of this stuff out for me. So if I mm-hmm. showed up enough t- sessions a week, you know, and I did everything that I was uh, being told to do in therapy, that it was all going to just go away. Like it wasn't going to, you know, I realized that that wasn't going to be the case. And I was, I, I cried a lot <laughs> and mm-hmm. I realized like, oh my gosh, I have to accept this and I don't know what to do. This feels like a life sentence. Like this feels mm-hmm. so wrong that I have to carry it. And then I got to a place where I was like, okay, I, I can try and figure out something good to do with this. And my background's in education. I worked in higher education since I uh, got my bachelor's degree and, um, so I was pretty comfortable with that that part, and I decided, well, really what I can do is help educate other individuals and help them become more sensitive to what the needs are of um, individuals that they're working with, whether they be clients or they be, you know, um, uh, attorneys who are trying to work with a, a person to understand the situation they've been through to prosecute somebody. Um, whether, you know, just as they develop more of an understanding of who that is. So I started um, just a couple of years ago uh, going out and uh, speaking with professionals and um, giving them a better understanding about some simple tips that they can uh, implement pretty easily um, to be more effective and to make their job easier and it to be an advocate and make it easier so that um, clients can have a much easier experiences they're getting services. A lot of times uh, people will not want to go and ask for help because of the way they've been treated. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really want to be a part of uh, making their experiences better and um, helping people to understand what it is all, you know, truly about to have a dissociative identity disorder, to be a survivor of ritual abuse and trauma, and also provide hope because I think you know, and when I say that, a lot of times people um, assume that I'm talking about for survivors, and I, d- I definitely am. I want to I want to be a beacon of hope for them, but also for professionals, because I think it's easy to, to think that this is as far as somebody can get. Like, well, this is good, right. and, and they're more functional. Like, I will say I was fortunate enough, and I, I have been very fortunate in finding just the right people to drop into my life at just the right time. But you, if, if I can, you know, say one thing today, I would say have more hope for that person than they have for themselves. It's, it's a really basic thing in education that, like, if we only set a bar, people are going to get to that bar. But if right. we move that bar and we raise it a little bit higher, they're going to work to achieve that next step. I mean, it's, it's kind of within us as human beings to want to keep striving. But if, if somebody says this is your bar and that's as far as you can get, that's probably as far as they can see because they can't see where that next place would be, especially people who have had a lot of trauma and don't have a lot of, had a lot of good examples in their life of what it might look like to go beyond that. So, you know, 
that that's what I I would say is always kind of uh, encourage that person to get to that next level. Um, let them know what that next level might look like and try and achieve it. And talk a little bit about, I know um, we're, we're going to wind down and I should have brought this up earlier, but um, you know, ritual abuse, ritualistic abuse is explain to our listeners that don't know what that means. What, what is that or what was that for you? So uh, for me, it's, uh, was I was born into a family that was uh, it was intergenerational, so it went from one generation to the next. Uh, as far as a very systematic abuse that happened to me at every most every night, they have very uh, predictable dates. They kind of had um, their own religion around it, mm-hmm. and uh, so they inverted Catholicism basically and. Um, utilize like kind of religion as a way of torturing sexual abuse physical abuse emotional spiritual abuse um and they would do horrific things that uh in the name of it being um what a profound higher being (laughs) would want them to be doing or to make me a better person i would you know in their mind i was born very innately bad and it was their job to kind of correct that and make you know, it is their job to punish me for that. And so that's, you know, the first 20 years were long, long periods of, of that. I would, you know, by day we looked pretty, like a pretty normal family. It was a very rural area I grew up in and I would go to school, but the whole community, there was a community of people, it was a small community and there's like, there's prominent professionals that were in, in this group as well. So they had... Mm-hmm small group that always met and then they had like on these big dates they would have you know a significant number of other people uh come in and and join in this ceremony type things amazing so there was like uh, no place for you to escape either because what adult could you trust if prominent people in the community and a, bunch, a lot of adults are also involved in this activity yeah yeah so that's you know and they were pretty protective i mean there's there's the one that ended up going to prison, um, but that's there's only one out of a large number of people who were involved, and so, um, and that was just by chance that uh, you know they were they were caught, <laughs> they were right. seen doing it, and but the rest of the group protected everybody else, and so it was, you know, it was a challenging situation to get out of. That's why I think, too, we have to remember listeners is why dates for people that have had this kind of abuse, as, you know, and also sexual abuse, uh, the, these dates, they live in your body and you do get stressed around those times. And when you're an adult, even if you've had a lot of therapy, you, you can kind of forget um, I've, I have times where times of the year where now I'm aware, okay. Remember, you're going to be extra tired. You're probably going to be a little more emotional because that date's coming up. And that that's lessened as I've been in therapy. But there were many years that I just felt like I was literally crazy. And it didn't dawn on me until later. Oh, I feel like that every time this date comes around. What's that about? Mm -hmm. Like it takes you a while to put those pieces together. And then with the help of a good therapist, you put the puzzle pieces together and you go, that's why and no people that haven't had that kind of abuse don't understand well what is a date who cares well (laughs) 
if something horrible happened to you at that time, uh, your body remembers that trauma and that date does mean something to you. Um, So getting to the root of it. It gets into every cell of your body and your body responds whether you want to or not. (laughs) And so you'll see clients begin to call more or have more crisis moments around those. And they may not even understand why they're having those crisis moments like you said. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. And yeah, and as you, I think that's another thing too for me where dogs and horses have been really vital in my healing because they are so sensitive in different ways and um, the dates to them didn't, that wasn't part of the equation. It was just, um, I, I just felt safe. There was just a safety factor there that I did not have with humans, like you said, because the humans were the ones that were causing the abuse. So there's something about animals that you can just dip into a very safe place that is so healing and loving and supportive that uh, not every human has been that for you. Makes it hard for you to trust other humans. So how has that been for you in terms of now trusting more human beings and trusting new people coming into your life? Where does all of that fit in for you now? I, you know, I, uh, gotten involved in, and many more things and I'm actually going out and doing public speaking now, uh, to help mm-hmm. educate around this. And so I, I feel like I've really expanded my role of being able to trust. And it's really hard to share your, your own personal story. Oh, yeah. Um, and so I would say, you know, I, I've really grown and I do attribute uh, the significant change in my healing once I started integrating horses into it. And uh, I wish there was uh, more studies already done on how this works and why it works and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. But what I can tell you is it does. And the person doesn't have to be a horse person and, and, and the therapist doesn't have to be a horse person if they like work with somebody else that has that skill set. Um, but you'll see some amazing results happen. And I had tried years. Um, I was in, I was in therapy for eight years prior to, to, to trying this. And still, you know, the, my therapist will describe the first day she met me as like my hair over my eyes. I wouldn't make eye contact. I yeah. could barely share my story. And now, you know, it's seven years later, but I'm, uh, out sharing and helping and educate other people about, um, what happened to me and what works for me as far as and what they can do to to help make that connection with the clients that they're working with. Absolutely. Well, Maddie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, tell our listeners where they can find out more about you. Sure. I have a website and it talks about, um, it tells a little bit more about me and uh, tells about, you know, the topics that I generally speak on. Um, it can be found at Maddie Caballo. It's M-A-D-D-I-E-C-A-B-A-L-L-O.com. And uh, I'd be happy to um, talk with anybody that's interested in learning more. Hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm glad you found us. Thank you for having me today. <laughs> and thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another edition of Mental Health News Radio.
Thanks so much for listening to Mental Health News Radio. Our podcast can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, and hundreds of other podcast apps. Or you can visit our website at mentalhealthnewsradio.com. If you have a question or would like to be a guest, become a podcaster on our network, or join the amazing organizations that help keep us on the air, please email us at info at mhnrnetwork.com. Get ready for that special goodbye from our resident therapy dog, Miles, and a special thanks to Emily Sohn for letting us use her incredible song, Cordial, for our podcast music. Listen to the full song on SoundCloud at emily.sonne. Don't be surprised when I don't hate on you. After all, we promised we'd be cordial. Sometimes in you, I can